when it comes to really thinking about how we promote human rights. Yes, the work we do within the UN is really important. Yes, the work we do within courts or within schools is really important. But it is about ways of connecting as humans. And that implicates the media, you know, that implicates corporations, that implicates all of these actors who shape our sense of place and being um, in the world. Professor Tendai Achume, the UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism and Intolerance, plays a key role in the comprehensive implementation and follow-up to the 2001 Durban Declaration and Program of Action, aimed at stamping out racial injustice and inequality across the world. Her most recent report to the General Assembly in New York underscores the important role the landmark declaration has played, pushing back against racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. The independent UN Human Rights Council appointed expert describes the framework a groundbreaking instrument for human rights principles with priorities still relevant 20 years after member states first adopted the anti-discrimination agenda in South Africa, and says that while racism manifests differently across societies, none of us are free from the effects. I'm Natalie Hutchison, and for this special edition of Our Lit Is On podcast, the head of UN News, Mita Hosali, spoke in depth to Ms. Achume about the significance of Durban today, where we stand now in the fight for racial justice, and how we can all help humanize broader challenges towards a truly harmonious, multiracial, and multicultural society for all. Hello and welcome, Professor Achiume. We're so delighted to have you join us. You spoke to UN News in April 2020, in the early days of the pandemic, and you acknowledged that humanity was seeing a surge in intolerance and racist and xenophobic attacks. From your perspective, where do we stand now, more than one year on? Mm. You know, I think that's a really difficult but important question to consider. And I think where we stand now is a very mixed picture. And I think it's best illustrated in two things side by side. One is the transnational racial justice uprisings that we witnessed in 2020, when there was just, I think, a global groundswell in pushback against systemic racism and even moves within the United Nations to name systemic racism as a fundamental issue rather than just focusing on individual bad actors. And I would say that was a high point, at least um, in recent years since the Durban Declaration and Program of Action or the World Conference Against Racism um, in Durban in 2001. And, and it was I think a period of, of hopefulness that there might be um, political will, momentum among UN member states to really take seriously some of the complaints that were being brought to them by protesters all over the world. At the same time, you know, since then, we've had the COVID pandemic. And what we're seeing in the context of the COVID pandemic is just the persistence of structural forms of racism and xenophobia. In countries across the world, you see that those who are most impacted are racial, ethnic, and, and national minorities, or else groups that are marginalized. And then transnationally, what people have described as vaccine apartheid, the allocation of access to vaccines, is, is dramatically differential depending on whether you're in the global north or the global south. And so I think both of those pictures point to hopefulness, but then also deep complexity in, in the picture that, that we have of what the state of racism um, today relative to the last time I spoke to you. 
So you just mentioned the World Conference uh, Against Racism. Uh, and September, as we know, marked the 20th anniversary of this conference, for which the UN convened a one-day high-level event. Um, what do you think the principal outcomes were for victims of intolerance, racism, and xenophobia? In the Durban Declaration and Program of Action, and actually my last thematic report to the General Assembly was on the DDPA. You know, that document, that instrument is, I would say, groundbreaking and phenomenal from a perspective of human rights principles relating to racism and xenophobia. Among human rights instruments, for example, it is the first to name xenophobia and xenophobic discrimination as an urgent um, uh, point of action and to raise the rights of migrants and refugees in the context of racism and xenophobia. It's the first to really push for the need for reparations for historical racial injustices, such as um, the transatlantic slave trade and um, colonialism. I mean, it doesn't do enough necessarily, but it definitely puts that um, on the table. It advances an intersectional approach to understanding xenophobia and discrimination. So it highlights the ways in which um, women, people with disabilities, migrants and refugees all experience uh, racism alongside other structures of subordination and discrimination. And I think at the 20th anniversary, what you saw was moves to reconsolidate and to re-emphasize the gains that were made at Durban and to highlight that they remain urgent priorities uh, today. You mentioned the one-day high-level um, event that was held at the, at the General Assembly, which I think was um, monumental in some ways, but also very disappointing. You'll know that there are a number of states that refused to participate in that event and that in general have boycotted um, the Durban process, whether explicitly or implicitly. And I think that that kind of behavior is so disingenuous. You know, you have the states that want to characterize themselves as bastions of human rights, but when it comes to fighting against racism and when it comes to recognizing the principles that are enshrined in Durban, I think the action of boycotting really reveals a kind of hypocrisy that shouldn't be tolerated at the UN. And I address this in my, in my report to the General Assembly as well. Thank you for that. I think you've made it quite clear that you see the Durban Declaration as principled and practical blueprint for undoing discriminatory structures. And you've also said that there was something, you know, a little bit disappointing. What would you say to those countries who are unconvinced and who chose to boycott? Mm. So the basis for the boycott, depending on who you ask, is as follows. You know, there's some groups who argue that the Durban Declaration and Program of Action is an anti-Semitic instrument, and they point to events that took place at the Durban uh, World Conference Against Racism that were truly problematic. There was a vocal minority of actors at that conference that really tried to advance an anti-Semitic agenda, but who were defeated by the plurality of UN member states and by civil society organizations that were there. And as I highlight in my report, there was a complete refutation of any attempts to have the Durban Declaration and Program of Action advance an anti-Semitic project. And if anyone who reads the Durban Declaration and Program of Action, you know, carefully and even casually, um, they'll see that there just there isn't anything in there that could come close to meeting the bar of anti-Semitism. Both the rights of Israelis and Palestinians are recognized there um, in ways that I think are consistent with international human rights law. And then there's other groups, I think, that have a hesitancy about the Durban Declaration and Program of Action because of its prioritization of 
reparations for colonialism and slavery. And I've published a report, which I also presented to the General Assembly, that makes the case for reparations being core principles of public international law. You know, so the kinds of claims that are advanced to undermine the Durban Declaration and Program of Action simply don't hold water in in any objective uh, sense at all. And so then it becomes a question of what's really going on. You know, what are the politics that are driving the opposition and how can we encourage the states that are um, adopting these positions to move beyond those kinds of geopolitical kind of thickets to to implementing uh, human rights. The final thing I'll say is, as somebody who studies international human rights instruments, I can say that there is no instrument that we hold close today that wasn't produced in truly controversial circumstances. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted in 1945, if I'm not mistaken, when the vast majority of the world was living under colonial subordination. And the countries that advanced that instrument were ones that had colonial territories and were oppressing people on a racial basis. But you don't see countries from the global south saying they're going to boycott the UDHR because the principles that were enshrined there are ones that are consistent with international human rights. And so to my mind and from the perspective of my mandate, I think it's just completely unacceptable that there's this cloud that continues to be put on the Durban Declaration and the Durban process on the basis of, you know, a minority that was defeated at the at the time. So, yes, in fact, uh, you know, the Universal Declaration was concluded in 1948. Sorry, 48. Right, but of course... Ah, yes, 48, sorry, is the founding of the UN. Um, So I'd like to switch gears for a second and ask you, if you don't mind, um, tell us a little bit about your journey from South Africa to uh, UCLA, to University of uh, California and Los Angeles, your decision to study law and to focus on human rights. Who were some of the formative influences along the way? I'm actually, I'm half Zambian, half Zimbabwean. I spend a lot okay. of time in South Africa. I've worked and I practiced here. Um, but, you know, it's it's a long and, and complicated uh, journey. I think of myself as a uh, a migrant, an international migrant who for all kinds of reasons, has been forced to move across borders. You know, I went to law school in the United States as a last-minute decision, actually. I spent most of my life thinking that I would be a doctor or an engineer or something like that. I've always been interested in in human beings and in making the world one that is a more enjoyable place to live for everybody. And I think it was while I was in in college in the US actually, when I took a class on law and development policy and became really fascinated with law as a tool for social change. Um, And at the time, the human rights frame seemed like the most appealing one for making sense of human suffering and for fighting back against that. Since then, in my academic work, I think I've become far more critical of human rights than I was at the beginning of the journey, because human rights as a framework are also inflected by the kind of geopolitical dynamics that result in um, in inequality. But, you know, the journey to being an academic was one that I would never have predicted, having, you know, been born in a small town in, in, in Zambia, quite far away from, from where I've ended up. 
And we all know we start out with a particular trajectory, but we don't necessarily end up where we imagined ourselves going. Our current secretary general was an engineer by training, you know, so uh, and here he is leading, you know, the United Nations. So who can tell? Right, right? right. <laughs> It's so true. And I mean, you know, right now my mandate is focused on on racism and that I never imagined that would be a focus of my work, you know, and, you know, with all of these categories that we are placed in, whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's disability status, whatever it is, we are who we are. And then society sort of inducts us into these categories because of the experiences that we have. And when it comes to racism and xenophobia, I think that's definitely my experience. You know, if as somebody who was generally interested in human beings and human flourishing, really experiencing personally, and then also through the experiences of people like me, the difference that racial categorizations, gender categorizations all make to lived experiences, I would say that has been the catalyst for my finding myself inadvertently in, in this position. And we are all the luckier for it. <laughs> <laughs> so you have said, uh, Professor Achume, that part of the problem we face today is reaching people um, not identified as directly impacted by uh, different kinds of discrimination. Uh, how do you humanize and localize the dangers of intolerance, hate speech, uh, disinformation for so many communities across the world? So I think that's a really, a really important question and then a really important set of issues to think about. And the first thing that I'll say is I, I have definitely said that, that it's it, oftentimes the challenge is not the groups that are most directly impacted by race, racism or xenophobia, all of these, but it's the groups that are not. But I want to reverse myself and say there is nobody who is not impacted by racism, xenophobia and all of these structures. They are beneficiaries of these structures and there's people who are subordinated by them. Right. So even if you are white and living in the United States, you might not be at risk of being shot by the police because of the color of your skin, but you benefit from a criminal justice system that privileges you on the basis of your whiteness, right? So the, so I want to begin by correcting myself and saying everybody's directly impacted, whether we know it um, or not. Having said that, you know, the experience of racism and xenophobia is different in so many different places. Even in my mandate, one of the challenges that I confront is how racism is characterized in the United States is very different from how it might be characterized in, in Singapore or in the UK or in Morocco, or wherever the case might be. That's not to say that there isn't discrimination or intolerance, but the way that it operates and manifests is very different. So again, developing the tools that access even the quote unquote directly impacted can be really difficult. But I think one thing that changed since the last time we spoke. And, and I mentioned this before, we saw last year after the murder of George Floyd, there was a way of thinking and talking about racism and, and in some places even xenophobia that approached a kind of global conversation. And I think it's important for us to ask why it is that there were people of all races, ethnicities, genders out on the streets, all fighting for the same thing. And, and I think part of it had to do with just how visceral um, the murder of George Floyd was and how much I think it reminded people of a kind of a shared humanity mm -hmm. in a time when we had all been brought to a standstill because of the pandemic. We weren't being pulled in a thousand different directions by the things that generally um, do. So I guess 
all of this is to say, for those of us who are human rights advocates, when it comes to really thinking about how we promote human rights, yes, the work we do within the UN is really important. Yes, the work we do within courts or within schools is really important. But it is about ways of connecting as humans. And that implicates the media, you know, that implicates corporations, that implicates all of these actors who shape our sense of place and being um, in the world. And so, you know, I was talking to some students yesterday who were asking me, you know, if we really care about human rights, what career advice do you have? And I was saying, when I think about social workers, in some ways, they are the front line front lines of the fight for human rights, and yet we don't kind of characterize them um, that way. So I think all of this is to say that the battle of really engaging all people in issues to do with racism and xenophobia is a multifaceted, multidisciplinary, multi-pronged kind of beast that we all have to apply ourselves to. And right now we focus on these narrow silos or corridors, and it's, it's not enough. Actually, you're quite right. I think, you know, the the event uh, in May last year, the death of George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd was seismic in how it maybe activated sectors of uh, society all over the world. Uh, so that you're quite right. It's not just human rights lawyers or activists uh, who were kind of swept along by this. And hopefully people will feel everybody um in all walks of life will feel that they have something to contribute to ensure that they also can move the needle when it comes to upholding human rights. Um, Absolutely. So I just wanted to ask you also last year, as COVID was kind of, you know, sweeping the world, pretty much millions of people were online because they were at home. You published a report about the distorting effects of emerging technologies and reinforced mm. racism. So tell us a little bit about mm. how you arrived at your conclusions. So uh, thanks for that question. And, and it calls attention to two sets of reports that I've, that I've published. One that focuses on emerging digital technologies generally and, and explores the ways in which they are reinforcing um, and in some, time, in some cases actually introducing forms of racial and xenophobic discrimination that we should really seriously um, be concerned about. And then another report that focused specifically on border enforcement and emerging digital technologies that are enforcing borders in racist and discriminatory ways. And the, the question of how I arrived to the analysis in those reports is since I've been in this mandate, I've been invited to join a number of conversations around emerging digital technologies. And it's always interesting to see the kinds of invitations that I get. Usually they focus on hate speech online and content moderation uh, of hate speech online. And I think this is a really important issue, but from an equality and non-discrimination perspective and from a racism and xenophobia perspective, Content moderation online is just a narrow slice of the ways that emerging digital technologies are shaping racism and xenophobia today. And so I was motivated in this report to try and take a broader analysis that looks, for example, at facial recognition technology and the ways in which studies show us that 
the capacity of, of the leading facial recognition um, technologies to recognize black and brown faces or women, for example, is so much lower than it recognition of white male faces, for example, which has massive implications for law enforcement, for border enforcement, and different places where facial, te facial recognition technology is working. And you actually find that there's this social scientists who've really been studying the racialized and xenophobic impacts of emerging digital technologies, but their human rights discourse around this hasn't followed suit. And so in the report, I was motivated to broaden the conversation to ensure that as we're thinking about the way that human rights apply to emerging digital technologies, we're not just thinking about privacy or freedom of expression, both of which are really important, but equally important, and maybe from my perspective, even more important, is equality and non-discrimination in the way that these technologies um, are being advanced. You know, just as a segue to what you said, um, we know, we speak about this a lot, we're very aware that hate speech, misinformation, disinformation is being fueled by social media and uh, messaging platforms. And you're an educator, so you work with young people. A lot of what you do, I imagine, other than, you know, teaching and academia is advocacy. So how do you advise young people to navigate this toxic environment? And do you see any signs of optimism in terms of how young people are determined to be a force for change? and to resist some of the negativity and, as I said, I mean, I use the word toxic, uh, kind mm -hmm. of impulses that, are, that we're seeing all the time. Yeah, so I think this is a really, again, your questions are, I think, are really tracking important threads. And so I keep saying this is an important question, but it's because all the questions you're asking are important questions. I want to begin with a little bit of uh, humility and perhaps an insight. So the insight is that when you think about revolutionary change, it is always led by youth because they are less invested in the status quo. So in general, when I think of where change is going to come from, I think it's going to come from, from the youth. And I think of myself as having aged out of the youth, but you know, the younger generation. So I think I think that's something to to pay attention to and to learn from and to think about what young people are doing in relation to things like social media to understand what change might look like. And I think the areas where there is the most hopefulness is the ways in which young people have attend have attempted to appropriate social media platforms, including for the purposes of pushing back against racism and xenophobia. And there's, I think, been a number of attempts to do that kind of a thing. And I think that's really valuable. I think what's really challenging is when we think about hate speech and, and incitement to violence online, it is part of the business model of social media companies, right? And so if we're really looking for change, we have to be thinking about remaking the nature of these corporate entities and their bottom line. We're talking about changing economic structures. And, you know, I think this is something that we should really be working with young people to really think hard about. So it's not just about what you do while you're on the platform. In fact, that's the very much the tip of the iceberg. It's what role can young people play in restructuring economic relations and the business models of these corporations in really meaningful ways. I think if we can involve young people in those kinds of conversations, we can see a completely different world. But for as long as we are 
thinking about, you know, moderating this platform, asking this platform to do that, we're missing the boat because it's, it, this is how they make their money. We have to remake the corporations if we're going to remake, you know, the environment as it relates to hate speech, incitement to violence, all of these things. Completely agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of food for thought. Thank you. Uh, you know, this word that we've heard a lot more about in recent times uh, and you have been outspoken about, is the need to tackle systemic racism in many parts mm -hmm. of the world. It's not just in one part of the world. We know societies are slow to change, slow to acknowledge mm -hmm. that there is a need to change, and that there are governments that are strongly opposed uh, to the views that you, know, you have uh, expressed about how systemic racism is transnational and needs to be tackled accordingly. So what do you say to them? I keep saying what we've been saying from the beginning. You know, I mean, I think about this, this my last General Assembly um, report, which basically is about a, an instrument that was concluded in 2001, 20 years ago, right? And, and there's a way in which even the racial justice uprisings that we were talking about last year, the demands that were being made, other kinds of demands that have been made, you know, since the since I don't even know when, you know, when there was anti-colonial movements that were pushing back against racism, the demands of common humanity are the same ones that I am making um, in my mandate. And the thing that I try and focus on is, although my reports are at least in name targeted at states, you know, what is the state? Right. What what shapes the state? The state is a kind of a black box in, in some ways, or at least it's a figurehead. And they are people who vote people into office, you know, who determine what policymakers do. And in many ways, I view my work is attempt at attempting to shift the sensibilities of the peoples that the state is supposed to represent. Right. So if I really think there is an urgency and a need to ensure that general populations are educated about the nature of racism. And one of the things I've been surprised by is how much suppression there is by many governments of education around racism and histories of, of racism. You see this in, um, in a number of countries, including the United States, you see this in Europe, I think you see it in other countries as well, where there is a backlash against confronting histories of racism. I think because there's a fear that if the general population can internalize the true meaning of systemic racism, they might actually be moved um, for change. So to come back to your question, what I say to states, um, to my mind, matters less than what I can state, say to the peoples who comprise those states and where power actually lies. Because I think focusing on states in some ways can be demoralizing. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, the ways in which states engage in human rights, you know, lawmaking and implementation of all of this stuff can can sometimes be truly, truly heartbreaking. And so I, I choose to focus on the people behind the states and to hope that there's hope on that side. In actual fact, change begins with every one of us. And you're quite right. Yes, yeah. uh, power is in our hands. So very quickly, I will say that even interacting with states, they're not monolithic. You know, there are times when I have engagements with states that on record are recalcitrant when it comes to addressing systemic racism. And then you'll find individuals within those governments who are interested in a different approach and who are trying to find ways to work with my mandate 
to shift the overall course of, of the government. And so even that, I think, is something that's really hopeful. Actually, that's what I wanted to end on. On a final note, what are the signs of hope that you've seen? You've visited countries, you've done, you know, lots of reports, you've engaged, as you said, with governments, with other non-state actors, uh, working on all kinds of human rights issues, and you've done amicus briefs. Uh, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, governments react maybe not so welcomingly of your of your suggestions. But what signs of hope have you seen that you can point us to and that you'd like us to be able to highlight? Yeah. So I guess I would say one thing that I try to remember is that progress is never linear. You know, we're not on some kind of teleological journey towards, you know, emancipation and freedom and every day we're just getting closer. I think you make you move forward, you move backwards. And I think it's the nature of of human beings. That said, I think two things to me that um, remain or at least most recently have been anchors of feeling hopefulness about what lies ahead. One is, as I've mentioned before, the transnational racial justice uprisings that that we witnessed in 2020. I would never have imagined that Black Lives Matter signs would be being waved in Geneva, you know, or that there would be a mural of George Floyd in the occupied Palestinian territories or in Syria. You know, there was just, I think, a really powerful moment that we all lived through. And that made me hopeful because I could never have imagined that I would see something like that um, in my lifetime. And it suggests that we may see more of that um, in the future. And then I think related to that, I view the movement around climate justice to also be a really powerful um, and exciting source of hope. You know, and climate justice is also a racial justice issue, right? So it's not entirely separated from my mandate. I think there's more to be done to ensure that those frames are are connected. But when you see what, again, the transnational movement for climate justice is doing in the ways that it's changing the way that not just governments, but even private corporations um, inhabit this planet, it suggests to me that it is possible to reorient structures that are deeply embedded and for it to happen within one's lifetime. That makes me hopeful. Do I think racism and xenophobia are about to end? No. (laughs) You know, and I spend most of the time feeling like the more things change, the more things uh, stay the same. But I I don't think that's the case. And I think that um, there are real reasons to think that there can be meaningful deep change. So thank you. We've covered a lot of ground, Professor Achiume. And uh, you are our special rapporteur on xenophobia, racism, racial discrimination, and other forms of intolerance. We really do appreciate this incredible opportunity to talk with you about all these, you know, they're really pressing issues of our time. So thank you for making the time for us, and we hope we'll have you back again. Thanks. And also thanks for having read my work in the mandate and engaging with it. This was a very substantive conversation, and I I really appreciate that. Thank you, and keep... Keep writing and keep advocating because we will keep watching (laughs) and being inspired. That's the point. (laughs) You've been listening to Tendai Achume, our UN Independent Expert or UN Special Rapporteur on contemporary forms of racism, xenophobia, and related intolerance in conversation with our head of UN News, Mita Hosali. 
as part of our multimedia series surrounding the Durban Declaration's 20th anniversary. Visit www.unnews.org forward slash pages forward slash Durban Sketches for the inspiring stories of some of the other racial justice and human rights defenders spearheading the fight for a hate-free world. I'm Natalie Hutchison. Thanks for listening.